you want um, a little uh, poem to ease you in? Sure, I like her. Adam Barkley, nice and sparkly, dressed up for the winter's ball. <laughs> Hit the dance floor like an ostrich. What I need a man for, I'm a boss bitch. He sang to the confusion of all. Because oh. you weren't invited. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely a poem. Has all of the, um, the correct ingredients to be the definition of a poem. Well, it, I mean, it rhymed, had an ostrich in. Did have an ostr- you have to have an ostrich. Chief poem um, qualification. Um, do you want a noir slash hard-boiled quiz? Oh, yes, please. I've never, I've never wanted it anymore. <laughs> well, I thought instead of a, like a um, traditional quiz with like answers, you could just solve a crime. <laughs> I, thought you'd, I, thought you'd, I thought you'd prefer that. Oh, God, yes. So here's a bit I've of mood. I've been for this my entire life. Well, I'm hoping this will be an excuse to use some... Um, some of those uh, kind of radio play sound effects that we've been talking about for Just a while. Before we go into this, I'm going to admit an embarrassing secret. Yeah. Um, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a detective. And I bought... I, I did some research on, on what, what, what books you needed to read to be a detective. And I bought secondhand uh, a textbook of homicide investigation <laughs> that knew would have been like $100. But um, I got like a really battered old copy that was probably owned by a <laughs> police station or something. And it was written by this ex-homicide detective who was, my God, <laughs> it's more collection of anecdotes than it is textbook on crime solving. And I think it's wonderful. Remind me to show it to you one day. It's an, t- it's not, hang on. It's an anecdotal book it's of an, 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 homicide investigations. An anecdotal textbook of homicide investigations written in the 70s and 80s. Oh my God! Yes, bring it in. Oh, bring it in. It's that's it's, content. It's called. I think it's called the Handbook of Homicide Investigations. The Handbook of Homicide. And it's like eight hundred or nine hundred pages, and it's amazing. Fabulous. Well, I hope it's taught you something because here is a crime. Yeah, I've been studying. That maybe you can solve, maybe you can't. Okay, so there's there's going to be a bit of scene setting. It is a cold November night, middle of nowhere in a goddamn good-for-nothing old town. The sick light of a bloodshot moon makes your 57 speedster look jaundiced. To your right, a run-down row of shop windows has been boarded up, or more likely, gagged. To your left, the blackness of the desert. You can just make out the silhouettes of a few cactuses backing off with their hands in the air. They don't want no trouble, Cabron. In the street lies the crumpled body of Chipcake Fingerbottom, twitching, (laughs) twitching, stained, (laughs) and dead, like the first draft in a waste paper basket. You recognise the deceased with a shiver in your fundament. A small-time crook, a thief so petty he would steal a stuffed ferret's eyelash just if a taxidermist beat him at cards. As a coyote yowls mournfully from the desert, a tumbleweed crosses the road, avoiding eye contact. Where's he been, you wonder? (laughs) And what did he say to that coyote? On the street corner, an old blues man teases fruit from his saxophone, and suddenly your head is full of late-night speakeasies and liquor-shelled skylines. Until a shape moves on the roof. Sniper, you think. And like a cat, you duck and do forward rolls into cover. (laughs) You crouch behind the wheel arch of your speedster, yellow eyes glinting in the night like the last two drops at the bottom of a custard well. 
From this position, you assess the scene as best as you can. Chipcake isn't even cold. His soul ain't high enough to ride the Big Dipper. <laughs> From professional experience, you can tell he was shot facing the desert, with his back turned to his assailant, who had approached him from the street side. The old blues man keeps on playing his sax, sitting down on the curb with his knees up like a dirty old frog. Who, <laughs> who shot Chipcake Fingerbottom? Yeah, yeah. And also, um, I appreciate the inclusion of forward rolls. <laughs> Please listen to our our attempt to do a uh, choose your own adventure book. Little sponsored reference to that. Shot facing the desert. There's a blues man and a, a sniper. Maybe a sniper. Maybe That's a, just what you thought. Maybe yeah. a sniper. Yeah. And a tumbleweed. Yeah, suspicious acting tum- suspicious tumbleweed. tumbleweed. Yeah. I hate to profile, but. Sometimes you have to, like, you have to make these kind of awkward decisions, being a detective. Are there any other clues available to me, or is that short story? That's the whole thing, yeah. You can verify a few things if you want. Okay, Uh, tell me me about the blues man again. Tell me about his saxophone. Well, all we know is that he's playing his his sax. He seems pretty calm. He uh, he sits down on the curb with his knees up. Like a dirty frog. Like a dirty old frog. Um, But uh, he's looking pretty casual at this point. He's not looking... Um, worried. He's certainly not portraying any outward signs of guilt. Oh, it was me, wasn't it? I shot him. Did I do it? I mean, are you going to really turn the gun on yourself in this sense? <laughs> Moving shape on the roof. Jazz man. Me. Or you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to accuse jazz man. Do you want to hear the answer? You don't get a name like Chipcake Fingerbottom for nothing. Chipcake never could keep his hands to himself, and sooner or later he was bound to poke his pinky up the wrong stinky. You pushed it too far this time, Chip, you think to yourself, straightening up with a telltale sting in your anus. I did it. It was me. (laughs) It was me. He got you good all right, but you got him one better. You holster your pistol, step over Chipcake's corpse and approach the old blues man, who's still playing away with a faraway smile. Hey, Slick, you say. I got a silver dollar here, says you didn't see nothing. You drop a coin <laughs> You drop a coin down the bell of his sacks and turn to leave. <laughs> As the old <laughs> As the old blues man chokes <laughs> You pause. And while you're at it, Slick, know any songs for a man with a cold heart and a sting in his tail? <laughs> oh, I should have gone with my gut. Yeah, yeah, you were kind of onto yourself. I set the tone. A new kind of quiz. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, I, love, I love all of my quizzes genre theme <laughs> from now on. Okay, cool. Uh, we've got a message from um, Simon Armitage. We just put it in the bin. His stuff's never worth listening to. Oh, he, mate, he's the king of poetry. Yeah, be careful what you say, because we're, we're making most of my money off him now. Oh, really? Yeah. Shit, okay, sorry, sorry. Hello, Simon Armitage here, your friend and leader, high priest of poetry. Uh, I take my responsibility as a role model very seriously, and that is why I wanted to take time to appear on Ear Read This to respond to some of the young, aspiring poets who have cons- t- contacted me with their work. 
Yesterday, I received a poem from Jamie, who is 17 years old and wanted to ask me what I thought of his stuff. His poem was called, You Say I'm Weird, I Say I'm Different, a charming and relatable prose poem full of quirky humour and warmth, in which Jamie explains to the reader of the poem that although they have become convinced of his weirdness, he takes the point of view that this is a misreading on their part of an obscure strength of his, which presumably they are too myopic or boomerish to pick up on. I was inspired reading Jamie's poem and composed a a poem in response. Here it is. Oh God, he's actually done a poem. He's actually going to put his money where his mouth is for once. Don't get cute with me, you cunt. Or say I'd... (laughs) Or say I'd... Or say I'd call you weird when I wouldn't. You're as weird as a three-leaf clover, so forget the poetry, it's over. Jamie, go home some. You're winsome, you're loathsome. Your prose is saccharine and lame. Diagnosis, lack of shame. You're as different and new as socks on before shoes. Jamie, go home, son. You're winsome. You're loathsome. You're desperately keen but unstudied, meaning your couplets land like two dogs trampolining. Jamie, go home, son. You're winsome. You're loathsome. That was it. Bloody hell. Yeah. Think think he rattled Armitage a bit there. Yeah, um... Easily threatened. I was going to say, do you think his position as um, king of poetry is is all that secure? Because he's not a very uh, he's not a very sort of fresh voice, is he? Caroline Duffy never had to sort of defend her position, you know. And and one thing about Caroline Duffy is she she would never attack her opponents in poetry. She would always let her fist do the talking. Oh, definitely. And I think she she probably didn't even view them as opponents. No. You know? The fact that he's feeling he's feeling threatened by a just more fodder for the f- for the f- <laughs> for the fists. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. God, um, it's always nice to hear from Simon, I suppose. Uh, I mean, so- sorry, Jamie. Sorry, Jamie. Um, better luck next time. I would say stick at it. Uh, wait until we've got a new one and then try it again. Yeah. Yeah. Don't be put off. I mean, he's been doing this a long time. I'm sure he's quite rattled that you sort of took a shot at him maybe you didn't maybe you just misread it maybe he's having a bad day yeah uh don't don't give up the day job yeah oh no that's that's the bad one i uh, do give up the day job do this full time um richard woof is making his uh, as good a recovery as he can i'm so happy to hear it i knew you would and uh i know he's uh happy that you sent dear, him a card dear, dear friend of mine and thank you because i i as you know, he's written this script. He's got into noir fiction yep. um, after listening to our episode, and he's written this thing. It's called Barclay and Wolf. You're a, a set of detectives in San Francisco. Um, uh, he's really excited about this first episode. It's called The Pekingese Staff. Okay. Um, and it's, he says it's an audiobook. Um, and I'm just going to let him sort of read it out but I know that you're playing a character in it you're actually playing two characters so you you need to read out the Adam lines and the and the twanky lines oh, no. and he's asked could you do the twanky lines just in a girl voice like a, a female voice um he would but he's too in character himself as um detective Richard Woof, which is a bit of a stretch for him it's okay um there's no there's no way out of this is there I'm afraid not 
but it's all Richard Wolf, not me. I, I'm just going to sit over there. <laughs> Th- thanks for doing this, Adam. <laughs> oh, it's, um, oh, God, your face. <laughs> so I, I'll, um, I'll just introduce it. So this is uh, Richard Wolf's um, Detective Noir script, Chapter 1, The Pekingese Staff. It was just another Friday at the San Francisco offices of Barclay and Wolf. It was a hot summer, and in an effort to keep cool, I had my shirt open, my feet up, and my entire tongue out. The sun crept in like seamless exposition, lighting on my 35-year-old body, my boyish good looks, which, though clearly English, had been raised in France by a doting mother, father, and nanny, who were now lined up on my mantelpiece in their personal urns. Nanny in modest, working-class terracotta, mother in pearls, and father, always the showman, in mirrored glass. The dazzle of which blinded my junior partner of three years, Barclay, who, being Scottish, was allergic to all vitamins, but reserved particular fear for D, which, for him and all his kinsmen, stood for death. (laughs) What's wrong, rookie? I joked with a laugh. Never seen a bit of sun before? Oh, lay off, boss. You know about my allergies. Maybe if I turn this way, I'll... The rookie winced. On the opposite wall of my office hung over 25 awards for detective work and lovemaking, framed in glass. I guess, rookie, I tittered, you find yourself in a classic double blind. And as he yelled in pain but also laughed at the joke, I roared as only a man with his entire tongue sticking out can roar. In case you're wondering about why I had my tongue out, it's because I had a horrible taste in my mouth and was just trying to air the place. (laughs) Gee, boss, any chance you could lay off polishing those awards? Or at least lay off winning so damn many? No can do, Rocky. When clients walk in here, the detective uh, awards impress them. And the lovemaking ones are just totally out of my hands. It's an independent body of deeply and consensually satisfied women who want to give credit where credit is due. Even this one? Best solo act? But at that moment, in walked a fruity dame (laughs) with high heels and low-cut morals. Gee, what a dame. Long, chestnut-coloured legs, swinging hips, and cleavage like the back of the biggest, softest sofa in the planet. Kind of sofa you could lose custody of your kids down the back of. She had red hair and green eyes. Like me, she had her whole tongue sticking out and had completed the look by lodging a... (laughs) By lodging a carrot in her backside. She was she was a mystery, all right, and she had my attention. <laughs> I don't know. I actually don't know how to do it. If, if it's one decibel higher than your normal voice, it'll be enough. <laughs> my name is Penelope Pankey. This was the kind of dame you had to show who was boss. So keeping my tongue all the way out, I gestured for her to take a seat. She blushed, her (laughs) her fingers fluttering apologetically toward the carrot. But please, Mr. Wolf... Sit down, Miss Twanky, or or I won't hear another word. Come on now, boss, can't you see she's... Shut it, Rocky. Slowly blushing, she took a seat in front of me. Her eyebrows quivered and her whole tongue shook as she lowered herself into the chair. It's good for your eyesight, I growled. <laughs> now state your business. Well, ooh, thing is, 
Mr. Wolf, Mr. Parkley. I hear you two are the oh, best in town, and my problem is of the delicate kind. You got any more details, miss? Oh, darn it, Rex. Why'd you have to do it? I'm sorry, detectives. I'm just overcome, I guess. Are you? Or is that the carrot talking? You have to believe me. I'll do anything. You're not making any sense, lady. But I had noticed something. Who is this Rex? She looks stunned, chastened. He's my guy. We're going steady. Only last week he disappeared. Afterwards, a few scary-looking men came looking for him, saying he'd robbed a man in the street. Get out of here, lady. We don't deal with petty crime. You're not listening. You didn't steal the man's wallet, only his walking stick. My whiskers twitched. Or at least I thought it was a walking stick. Turns out it's a staff. The Pekingese staff, they call it. What's so special about a rotten old staff? Quiet, rookie. Let the dame talk. I want you to find him. Rex, that is. Won't you find him, detective, and get him to give it back? I'm scared, detective. I just want these men to stop bothering me. I got to my feet. Tucked my tongue back into my mouth and lit a cigarette. Staring out at the city, I said coolly, Miss Twanky, it looks like you need to drop the nice act. You're too much carrot and not enough stick. Well, that was episode one of um, Barkley and Woof. Um, I've, I've just heard from the, um, the studio, it's not been, pilot's not been approved. No, but he was hoping it would go to like a... I don't think it's going to go to syndication this month. Netflix, I think. Mm. Um, which is weird because it's kind of a book. Yeah, like obviously, he narrates a lot of it. Yeah, it's really not screen-worthy, I think. But um, I think that made him feel a lot better that you recorded that with him. How was he on the day? Um, he's, he's horribly disfigured. Yeah, I, I so I heard. He's, um, yeah, he's lost, lost a lot of his um, boyish charm. Yeah. Looks, looks a bit less like a, an Eaton banker, which is good. Good. But, yeah, he's... Burnt or just disfigured? Um... He's got a sort of universal monster thing going on. Oh, okay. I'm not going to reveal which one because I'm still workshopping in a second. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll find out next week. Um, do you want to have another episode of um, Books on Film where we discuss... I really thought you were going to see another episode of the Pekingese stuff. We're going to pull out <laughs> a second part. Well, obviously we want to know what happens, so I'm sure do there we? will be. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we do. We do. And he did contract you for um, three because I think he he booked you two Ubers, so I think that's the whole the whole series. Yeah. Um, but we'll uh, we'll play another episode of Books on Film for now. It ends in a quiz, I promise. Hello and welcome to another edition of Books on Film. My panel of esteemed guests this evening include the Hungarian novelist Jan Jansen. Hello. The anarcho-feminist screenwriter Kay Deal. Hi. The radical librettist Tim Wood. Hey. And the Scottish filmmaker Kimboogle Flapgoosey, Cantrip Jaloosfrinkle, Neeps and Stinge Piping, Fingle My Brother Will rick- Rip Out Your Thrapple, Shetland Shatland, Moira McGregor, Glen Kiltpish McTwat. And I'm your host, Jenny Heaven. <laughs> Before we start, that's a very traditional name, isn't it, Jan Jansen? Oh, yeah! And what about yours? Where's, where's your name from, Mr. McTwat, of the clan McTwat? Uh, Irish, actually. <laughs> Is it really? <laughs> okay, so on um, this edition of uh, Books on Film, I've got a little quiz for you to play. You're first up, and the only contestant... Uh, Mr. McTwat. So, my quiz that we're going to play today is Noir Novel or Noir Novel? Um, simple simple quiz. Is this a Noir Novel or is it uh, made up? 
You're up first, Mr. McTwat. Eight million ways to die. Um, real. Correct. Well done. Midnight City Assault Pig. Uh, false. Not real. <laughs> correct. <laughs> Have you done this before? Wait, wait, was, was that correct or was that? No, correct that it was false, yeah. A morning for flamingos. Uh, real. Yep. Damn it. I know quite a lot about them. Tough guys don't jizz. <laughs> I want to say it's real for the comic effect. It's, it's false. It's false. And finally, pulp fungal. True. It's false. <laughs> ah, well done. That was that was a good, good round. And once again, um, books on film is only a ruse to say a ridiculous Scottish name. So there's oh. no follow up whatsoever, unless you have something you want to say about um, books on film. Uh, no, we've um, we've been told to cease and desist because someone else has done it. So therefore, nobody else has left. Yeah, we can't talk about the Maltese Falcon no, any more than about, we already we did. To talk about movie adaptations That's anyway. why I've had to make up so much ridiculous um, uh, peripheral content. Uh, about noir, we've had a we've had a, a, a cease and desist notice. Oh, yeah, another podcast that does um, books to film. Exactly, and they've said, "Stop it! You're making us look bad because you're significantly better than us." Yeah, I mean, we haven't even had a cease and desist notice. We just got scared <laughs> that we might do. <laughs> um, but that's about it. Unless you, there's any book news or 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 personal book news, anything you've been reading. Well, they start making them with paper. They've started what? They started making them with paper, but fucking hipsters. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, um, it'll never take off. It'll never take off. I mean, novels go into your ears. They go directly into your ears and yeah. into your eyes off my my illuminated screen. Read by podcast hosts such as Adam Barclay and um, correspondents like Richard Wolf, like the great uh, audio book coming out soon, The Pekingese Staff, which it's is only the first, the only, <laughs> the first adventure. Of Barclay and Wolf. I'm promised there are hundreds more. Oh, I cannot wait. Yeah. So look out for those. Um, yeah. Books are, books are still books. Books are still books. In this uncertain world, books are still books. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>